chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is going to be another one of these like two-part sermons. I just couldn't fit it all in. And so I'm not going to hold you all afternoon. All right, we're, we're going to split this up um, from into finishing things up next week. Um, but I want to remind you at the, at the get-go, as you'll see on the screen, is that the purpose of the book of Revelation is to stir the church. It's to stir the church from every generation toward a, an enduring hope and holiness in her Savior, Jesus Christ, so that she might overcome. So that she might overcome. <laughs> you, you can't get away from that language in the book of Revelation. There is something for the church to overcome. And as we've seen over the last few uh, weeks, we've come to recognize that the church, as it's outlined in the book of Revelation, is a church under attack. Do you feel it? If you don't feel it, by the way, that's part of the attack. That's part of the attack. Spiritual apathy is part of one of Satan's ways in which to deceive and render ineffective the church. We are at war as the church. I've been feeling it over these last few days, even personally. The battle for the mind. The thoughts that the enemy just continues to want to put before me to distract me from the truth of our Lord. I feel it. I feel the tensions. Do you feel the tension? The church is under attack, and the book of Revelation, which is to the church is, right, is to bring to mind, bring to the forefront the fact that from generation to generation, the church will be uniquely under attack. Revelation 12 is like the summary statement, as some scholars say, to the whole book of Revelation and it states this, that the enemy has come down to you, church, in great wrath because he knows his time is short. We are the target of his attack. Now, this isn't unique to us, of course. In verse 4, John specifically is writing to the seven historical churches. These were actual churches during this time. And it's, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to these historical churches. And each of these churches are all experiencing some level of attack. Amen. From outright persecution and suffering in Pergamum, Antipas, if you read through, has died for his witness and testimony to the spiritual compromise in the city of Thyatira. They're permitting sexual immorality, they're permitting idolatry to the outright spiritual apathy in Ephesus and Laodicea because they're given to all the earthly comforts and pleasures. The battle is raging in the seven churches. In fact, this is then the significance of writing to seven churches. Of course, there were other churches at that time. Why isn't John writing to them? Well, again, seven represents the fullness or completeness of something. And so what John is using is this literary technique in only writing to seven churches. But the seven represents the full church, the big C church, if you will. It's a portion of something that is to represent the whole. 
He's using this number seven and these specific seven historical churches to represent the big C church, all the church over all time, right? So the, the little technique that he is using is called a synecdoche, if you care, right? It's where a portion of something represents the whole of something. So if one of you today would say, hey, you got to come check out my wheels, all right? What would you be saying? You'd be saying, come check out my car, right? You'd be saying wheels. The part is representative of the whole. Or we had a wedding last week, right? So if someone gives their hand in marriage, they're not just lopping it off and giving the hand. They're giving themselves in marriage, but the part is representative of the whole. I'm giving myself in marriage. The seven churches are a smaller representative of the full church. In other words, this is to show us then that the attack that these seven churches are going through will be the attack that the church will face from generation to generation to generation. Amen. Attack is nothing unique to these seven churches as it's nothing unique to us. The church will be under attack. Amen. Do you feel it? So what's necessary for the church under attack? What's necessary for, for, for weary Christians who have been in the warfare? What's necessary for the apathetic soul that's kind of flailing in these moments of attack? What can supply help for the churches? What John does in verses 4 and following is this. He helps the church by elevating God in their minds and hearts. When you are under spiritual attack, everything that is happening in the world comes to the foreground. Do you feel that in this context that we're living right now? What have you been thinking about? Well, I've been thinking about all the political stuff. Just, no, just note what all the conversations are. It's all about the politics. It's all about Corona. It's all about these different things that are taking our attention. And so we see all the difficulty before us, causing us to kind of just reel in fear and reel in a weariness, right? And what John is doing is he's intentionally bringing God to the foreground. He's taking the circumstances of life and he's putting them back and bringing God forward. How is the church going to be helped when it's under attack? It's to have God elevated in their hearts and minds. That's why he jumps into this incredible introduction. It's like there's too much here to preach on even in the time that we have. That's why it's got to be two parts because there's just such rich titles given to God, right? That he's highlighting for us. In other words, he wants God to saturate our hearts and minds during times of difficulty, during times of attack. We must have God elevated in our hearts and minds. So he speaks specifically then in verses four and five to the God who alone is our supply. Next week, we'll see the God who alone is our worship and the God who alone is our confidence. But this morning, we're just going to look at one point, right? The God who alone is our supply. This is the God who is to be elevated in our hearts and minds when it comes to the 
difficulties that we face to the attack that we endure. So the God who alone is our supply. In verse 4, John states this. He says, grace to you and peace. One of those normal greetings that back then would be typical within the church. But it's not a throwaway greeting. If you throw away this greeting, you're throwing away the substance that you need in times of attack. We need this grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor and power given to his children. What do you need under attack? I need to know that my God is for me and that he has power to provide me in the midst of attack. What about peace? Peace is God's freedom and tranquility given to his children. What do you need under attack when things are chaotic? I need God's freedom and I need that peace that passes all understanding. I need that tranquility. John is saying grace and peace to the church. This is his greeting, but notice it's this supply. It's this grace and peace that is supplied by the triune God. So, he speaks of this triune God first in verse 4. Where does this grace and peace come from? Verse 4, from the one who is and who was and who is to come. The supply that we need in the midst of kind of this wartime attack, right, is from the one who is and who was and is to come. Here's our first, if you remember, hyperlink to the Old Testament. Remember how John is going to utilize his, his, his in, this information to push us back to the Old Testament. It's going to be hyperlinks to point us back to see exactly what he means. Who is this one who is and who was and is to come? Well, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it's where Moses is at the burning bush and he's being recruited of course, for this, the miracle of the Exodus, leading God's people out of Egypt. And there he asked God, who should I say sent me? And God's going to say, I am that I am. It's the name, as we know, that we get Yahweh from. It is the self-existent, self-sufficient God. He depends upon nothing, but he's created all things such they depend upon him. Right? And therein, he is a God who is unbound, he is unrivaled, he is unlimited in all his purposes and in all his promises. And it's this name then that early rabbinic literature, you, you watch the, some of the scholars of the day begin to take the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, and expand upon it and refer to Yahweh as the one who was and who is and who is to come. It's to emphasize the fact that Yahweh is God eternal. He is not bound by time and space. He stands over it. He's Lord over all redemptive history. In other words, there's no circumstances that ever box him in. He's not limited by the things that this world produces. He's not limited by the circumstances that we're oftentimes limited by. He is Yahweh. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He stands above and beyond time and space. He rules over it. Amen. Hallelujah. He is the eternal God. Now, 
Notice what John does. John messes with this title a little bit. The chronology of who was and is and is to come, he messes with it. He rearranges it. He fronts the words, who is. You notice it there? He says, who is and who was and who is to come. This is John's intentional way of emphasizing, if we could say it this way, the isness of God. It's to say that God, yes, is over time and over space. He is Lord over it all, and yet he is eternally present for the good of his people. He is for you, we can say. Right? He's Lord over all time and space, and yet he is eternally present for you so that we might have the actual promises that, oh, Brings such comfort to our hearts on a daily basis. Promises like this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's eternally present for us. Over time and space. And yet constantly present for us. Or the Old Testament promise. Joshua 1.9. Be not afraid. Don't be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you. Wherever you go. Folks, to have our eyes elevated is to behold then this God who is the eternally present God who is unmoved over time and space, but altogether present here and now for the sake of his people to supply the very grace and peace that we're in need of in times of attack. He is the eternally present God. Oh, take comfort there. Practically speaking, don't miss him. You run to your self-sufficiency rather than running to the all-sufficient one. You know how often we do that. That will be this week, again, it will be the temptation and it will be a tactic of an enemy to just push you towards self-sufficiency. I can figure this out for myself. When you start figuring things out for yourself, you become the God of your own life. You're taking the position of Yahweh. You weren't made to determine things for yourself. You were made to have him determine what is right for you. He knows what is best for us. And so the point is don't miss him this week. Don't miss him. Folks, we can find him in anything and miss him in everything. Right? That's not to get all new agey like he's in everything, right? He's not like animating stuff and all, whatever, right? It's not that kind of idea. It's that he's consistently speaking, he's consistently interacting, he's consistently convicting, he's consistently pointing you in certain directions, he's di consistently dispensing his grace and peace to you. Don't miss him this. So this grace and peace is supplied from this eternally present God. But notice how specifically this grace and peace is supplied. Verse 4. By the seven spirits who are before his throne. All right, we're getting a little weird, John, right? Now, remember 
Even numbers in apocalyptic literature have symbolic meaning. So scripture must interpret. Remember? Scripture must interpret. Scripture. <laughs> yes, okay. All right. Scripture must interpret scripture, and we must not impose our context upon the text. To try to figure out what the seven spirits are is not for us to sit back and say, well, I think. No, that's wrong already. No, we need to go to scripture to figure out what exactly these seven spirits refer to. And what we come to find out is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, these seven spirits are again referred to, but they're referred to as seven burning lamps. Those seven burning lamps become a hyperlink for us to go back to the Old Testament and go back to a particular text that John loves to draw from. Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah the prophet sees a golden lampstand, right? And on the lampstand are seven burning lamps. Now follow with me. In Revelation, the lampstands will refer to the churches. We'll see that later in chapter 1. But in Zechariah, the lampstand is representative of the temple that they were rebuilding at that time. And as the text says, even in Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 4, there was a great mountain of difficulty that stood before the people in attempting to see this temple rebuilt, this lampstand established. And so there is this, there's this question, how in the world is this temple going to be rebuilt? How will this lampstand be established? How can we actually accomplish this? There's this great mountain of difficulty and opposition. In other words, God's people, even during that time, were under attack. And the question is, how can we get past this great difficulty? How can we see the lampstand, the temple, established? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Declaring, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The burning lamps are a reference to the spirit of God. How will the temple be built? Not by the might of men, nor by these political powers of their day. So who establishes the lamp of God's presence? And who burns brightly upon that lamp? How are the people of God to actually establish these things? And, and to persevere through all kinds of hostility? How shall they overcome? By the Spirit of God in his sevenfold fullness. Right? The number seven is again a reference to the fullness of something or completeness of something. Who then becomes the means by which the church under attack is established and sustained in her witness and in her warfare? It's the sevenfold spirit. In other words, he's referring to the spirit of God as being the all-sufficient spirit. He is the one who from the throne of God supplies grace and peace to the church amidst all kinds of hostility and attack. This is the same spirit, by the way, and it's the same wording in, in some sense that Paul will use of the spirit in his prayers for the church in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, that the eyes of our hearts might be awakened to the fullness of the spirit. The one who supplies from the throne of God this grace and peace, this empowerment and this tranquility, this freedom to the church. Our 
hearts, our minds must be elevated through all the chaos of these present circumstances. They must be elevated to see the fullness of God's Spirit given to us, given to us from God the Father. The Spirit is here. He is active in all His sevenfold fullness, in all of His sufficiency. He is here to impart grace and peace to us in time of need. The grace and peace is supplied by the all-sufficient Spirit. But then finally, how has all of this been made possible? Well, verse 5, the presence of God's grace and peace to the church under attack has also then come through Jesus Christ, who, as John says, look at the text, he is the faithful witness. Jesus came, in other words, as the perfect expression, the enduring witness of his Father. And so John will even record in his Gospel account Jesus saying these words, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was the faithful witness, and he became a faithful witness even unto death. He was a witness unto death, but then John refers to Jesus as... Not only the faithful witness, but the firstborn from the dead. Jesus became a faithful witness to his Father unto death, and the Father then vindicates Jesus in his resurrection. Right? He is the firstborn from the dead. It certainly refers to the fact that he is the first of, one, of the ones who are resurrected, right? But it also refers to far more than that. The idea that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is to say that Jesus is the one upon whom like all now of redemptive history swings towards this ultimate conclusion to see all things resurrected, to see all things made new. The firstborn of the dead is not just to say, oh, he was the first one resurrected. It's to say, no, he, he's like the linchpin to seeing all things made new. It's the thing your heart desires Week in and week out with all the crazy chaos that's going on in the world right now. Oh, that there would be peace. Oh, that there would be restoration. Yep, it is and will come through Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. He has been raised, and as the one who has been raised, he now is the one who will bring about the fullness of resurrection. He will renew all things. But as the firstborn from the dead, yes, he is the one who's going to inaugurate the age of seeing the renewal of all things. But he's also then this one who carries something of royal superiority. Or as John goes on to say, he is the ruler of the kings of this earth. In other words, what John is saying is that Jesus has all authority, not simply over every worldly power, but even over all the spiritual rulers and principalities that influence those earthly powers. So this is where I just wanted to slow down and to like digress a little bit and explain specifically who Jesus is as the ruler of the kings of this earth. What John is doing is not just tossing out these titles. Hey, be encouraged. This is who your God is. 
What John is doing is he's referring back to the full biblical account and tracing these incredible themes and he's freighting then these titles with this huge meaning that has been developed throughout the whole Old Testament. These are not just simple phrases. These are phrases that should drop your mouth recognizing, look how sovereign God has been throughout all of redemptive history. And even just now, yes, the title comes freighted with all of that weight. It's incredible. So let me just digress a little bit. The ruler of the kings of the earth. What does this mean? In Genesis chapter 1, you've got to go back to the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1, who are the rulers of the earth? Adam and Eve, right? God creates them and says, you now have dominion, right? Go on to me, make a bunch of babies, rule this place. But then what we find out is that Eden is not just an earthly place, but it is the overlap of heaven and earth. Eden was a place where God walked among his, in the cool of the day, walked with Adam and Eve, right? So what we begin to see is that the Garden of Eden was actually this overlap of space between heaven and earth. It's the same reason why you have a snake show up. Same word used for seraph, right? Seraph was an angelic spiritual being. And so we have this seraph show up in this context where Adam and Eve are to be ruling. And what happens is that this seraph comes, tempts Eve. And notice what happens with Eve. She sees that the fruit was good and she takes it. We know that that brought about all kinds of consequence and chaos. But one aspect of that chaos is that Adam and Eve, in some sense, surrendered their authority. They were to rule and reign. But in giving in to the temptations, they now gave up something of their authority to the enemy. In Genesis 6, we see a similar kind of thing take place. Spiritual beings, again, enter into earth space. And notice, these spiritual beings see that the daughters of men are good, just like Eve saw that the fruit was good, and they take them for themselves, just like Eve took the fruit. Same language, same wording, right? And what happens, but it results, and this is where things get a little weird. It's not easy for me to, like, get my head around all of this, but it's what the text is saying. What happens in Genesis 6 is that as these spiritual beings come down and take the daughters of men, as they see them as beautiful and good, what results is the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Right? It's where we actually get the word, the fall, from. It doesn't come from Genesis 3, it comes from actually Genesis 6, from the Nephilim. It's where we get the idea then of these giant, getting weird, right? These giant, demonically inspired warrior kings, the Nephilim, who rule the earth and wreak havoc upon creation through victimization and oppression. And what does God do in response to that? He sends a flood. Time to wipe them out. But then, throughout the biblical storyline, once again, we see these warrior kings, these rulers of the earth, show up in the story again at the time of the conquest. 
Joshua, Caleb, the stuff that we read earlier uh, this morning, we see that there's giants. And where are they at? They're in the land that God has promised to his people. These Nephilim are back somehow. And they're possessing the land that God has promised to his people. And of course, Joshua then and Caleb are ready to take them out. But the people reel in this unbelief. Their hearts melt, as we read earlier. And because of their unbelief, God's people wander in the wilderness 40 years. Right? But then the story continues. We have another interesting account. A boy who's fighting a giant. Hmm. That's going to turn some heads. Right? Why? Well, because in the mind of the Hebrews, right, this boy fighting a giant David, right, is something like the promised Messiah figure who is to finally reign over these spiritual powers at work as rulers of the earth. So here's this boy showing up and killing this giant. This boy of you know, profound faith slaying one of these demonically inspired rulers of the earth. If you were a Hebrew at that time, you would be saying, this guy needs to become king. And certainly, David continued to prove himself. But the people wanted him as king. Why? Because there was something about him that, that, that carried something of the messianic promise. But even when he is made king, we find that he too sees Bathsheba, that she is good. Same language from Genesis 3, same language from Genesis 6, that she is good, and he takes her to himself. Oh, this is where the heart of the Hebrews just fell. It was, it was seemingly the promise of this Messiah figure who could finally be the ruler of the kings of this earth, and yet he himself is susceptible to spiritual attack. He can't overcome the temptations of the enemy. So he too then is proven unable to stand against the enemy. His reign is compromised. This is why coming then in the storyline to the point of Jesus is so astonishing. Remember what he does before he enters his earthly ministry? He's sent into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And what does he do? He overcomes. He doesn't give in to the schemes of just like Eve fell, right? Just like later David would fall. No, Jesus doesn't fail at all. He overcomes in his temptations. What we then even see is Jesus declaring... <laughs> If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has truly come upon you. What is he saying? He's like, the Messiah figure has shown up. Right? I am the one. These spiritual beings now are subject to Christ's command. And as we know, he becomes then, as the text has said, this faithful witness. He becomes this faithful witness even unto death. And in God's providence, the enemy comes and puts him to death. But in death, he's vindicated. He's proven true. He did not fail. Like
like everyone else has failed. He was not susceptible to the temptations of the enemy like every other king was. No, he's overcome. And even in his death, and he's vindicated in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, this is the language of the New Testament, he is given authority over heaven and over earth. He is the ruler of the kings of this earth. Which is to say, yes, he is ruler over all the political scheming, but also all the spiritual influence behind that. All the scheming of the enemy that is behind all the political work in this world, Jesus stands over it all. He now rules it. He has authority. He has the keys to hell and to death. Right? This is Jesus. This is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I have to tag this on then. You get to Ephesians chapter 6 and the apostle Paul says, Oh, by the way, church, you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You're going to be battling a spiritual battle. So what does he say? Stand firm and put on the armor, we typically say of salvation. It's the armor of your Messiah. It points us back again to Isaiah, which outlines the armor of the Messiah. The Messiah figure will come arrayed in armor. He will overcome. And what, John, or, uh, what Paul is saying is just like, maybe you could say it this way, just like David, you know, in the moment of Goliath, he's trying Saul's armor on. And it's like, this is just not fitting. This is just not going to do the trick. Why? Because Saul isn't the guy. Saul isn't the Messiah. He, he's not the one that we are to place. No. But by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is saying, oh, put on the armor of the ruler of the kings of this earth because it has been made perfectly fitting for you. In other words, the armor that you're to put on of your Messiah now carries with it authority over the enemy. In other words, the armor cannot be penetrated by the schemes of the enemy. And specifically, we could say it this way, the enemy cannot destroy your faith. He cannot destroy your faith. He'll bring assault, he'll bring accusation, but it's Jesus who is the author and perfecter of that faith, and he is the one who tends to it. He is the one who guards it, right? And as the one who guards it, he is the one who ultimately will see that faith for grace and peace will be brought to you in times of attack and in times of battle he will tend to your faith you too <laughs> you know even as we see that the church as attack comes attack even is brought to the point of death when we put on the armor of the lord we're not we're not just strapping on this this armor that that doesn't necessarily mean it won't go through really difficult times, or even endure something of death itself. But what we see, even in, as described in, in the seven churches, specifically the church of Pergamum, we see that even in death, the, the glory of Christ is realized all the more. It's incredible. So Antipas, he's going to give his life for his witness to Jesus. And Jesus then shockingly shares his very title with him, calling him my faithful witness. 
That same word is, is used uh, for us. We get our, our word martyr from. Right? So, so it's this idea, yes, he's been a faithful witness even unto death. In other words, he battled rightly. He put on the armor of salvation, and though it led to his death, it led to the glory of his king. So whether it's the church of Pergamum or whether it's the history of the church, we see the phrase used again throughout history, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Through her faithful witness, even unto death, the glory of her king is advanced. Amen. Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Why? Because he is the ruler of of the kings of this earth. Hallelujah. This is who he is. Christ then is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Folks, if we could just kind of like make this again super practical, it's all to say that the resurrected king, the ruler of the kings of this earth, there is nothing that can hinder his grace and peace being supplied to his very own. Nothing can rival him. Nothing can get in the way of that grace and peace. He is the one who is unrivaled, and therefore in his victory, in his authority, he has made it right for grace and peace to be supplied to his church. Amen. So, how do we summarize all of the stuff that we've just been through? We perhaps can summarize it like this. The eternally present God, by his all-sufficient spirit, supplies the presence of his grace and peace to his church under attack by the authority of the resurrected king. Amen. The eternally present God, by his all-sufficient spirit, supplies his grace and peace to his church by the authority of of the resurrected king. We must recognize that we are under attack as a church. The enemy will be coming at us in many different ways to disable, hinder our faith, and yet God must be elevated in our hearts and minds. We must be reminded that this eternally present God by his all-sufficient spirit is supplying grace and peace to us by the authority of the resurrected king, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can count on that this week. Whatever mountains of difficulty stand before you, whatever chaos surrounds you, right? you can know this, that your God is actively supplying his grace and peace peace to you now and into this week. May God be elevated in our hearts and minds. Lord, we come to you um, thanking you for your kindness to us. You have shown us incredible mercy. You have shown us incredible grace. You have brought us from a place where we had no eyes to see you. Brought us.
us from our sin, and he has secured us to yourself. And God, we thank you that while we've received such incredible mercy in that, thank you that now consistently, day by day, moment by moment, you are postured, you are postured to supply grace, power to us, and peace, freedom and tranquility. So right now, we then pray um, against the enemy. Um, we pray against all the thoughts that do not align with you that have been bombarding our minds and hearts even over the last few weeks. We see those as being lies of the enemy and we speak against them. God, we want truth to reign in our hearts and minds. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come even now and supply the grace and the peace that we are in need of. Grant victory, freedom in our minds. Gotta pray by your spirit, even right now, that you would supply something of just peacefulness. Not thoughts racing, but something of peacefulness, tranquility, because you're present. You're present. And Jesus, as the ruler of the kings of this earth, you have given us a renewed mind. We have your mind. We want to think the right thoughts. We want to think the thoughts that are in line with you. And Lord, we confess also that our hearts and the passions of our hearts have all have been all too easily satisfied with what the world affords us. From entertainment to perverted passions. We've looked for satisfaction in that which cannot satisfy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come, that you would be the supply, that you would be our fullness, our satisfaction. Lord, we need just, again, a touch of your presence. We need to apprehend, again, something of the way of your glory. This glory that does not leave us unsatisfied, it leaves us satisfied as nothing in this world can satisfy Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray that you would surround us even right now in just the spiritual protection from the enemy. Give us relief, relief. Some of the ways in which he's influenced us even over this past week. Where fears abound. Where fears abound from things going on in this world, Lord, Give us eyes to see you high and lifted up, the eternally present God, Lord of time and space. Set our gaze upon you.
I'm just sensing that there's, there's oppression, 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 spiritual attack, spiritual oppression taking place. And it's just, it's constant, it's consistent, it's undoing. So Lord, we, we come against that oppression in Jesus' name. We come up against that oppression. Holy Spirit, we pray that freedom would take the place of oppression. Freedom, freedom. We proclaim freedom in Jesus' name over the hearts and minds that feel the oppression. Jesus, we claim your authority. We claim your victory in these moments. And we declare that all oppression then must go in Jesus' name. God, I pray that, that where perhaps that oppression is finding inroads into our lives, Holy Spirit, bring those things to mind even now. Things that must be renounced, things that must go. They must go. They have no right. They have no place in the life of the believer. They have no place in the follower of Jesus. They must go. And even in these moments, Lord, we pray that this is not just kind of a spiritual kind of interaction, but this is something of which it, it maintains force maintains push throughout this next week, where the enemy will continue to come, where the enemy will continue to tempt us to go back to the very things that bring about an open door for his oppression to have place in our life. So Lord, we want the victory that you've accomplished for us to provide us something of freedom to be truly felt, consciously known. Let it be that this is not just a moment. This is something sustained by your spirit and by the faith of your people. This is not just a moment of battle. We have a week of battle ahead of us. <laughs> and so also then I pray for the weary person. God, I pray that where their, their strength is failing, where they're weary and well-doing, God, I pray that you would strip them of any kind of self-sufficiency in those things. God, that ultimately something of your faithful grace and peace bestowed to them would be felt moment by moment. We claim you as that eternally present God who is there for us, even here and now. But even tomorrow morning when we wake up and as we go to work and as we do all the things that you have for our hands to do this week, Strengthen us. So God, we pray all these things to see you glorified. To see something of the, the lamp of Mercy Gate Church to shine brightly for your name's sake. How will this be accomplished? How will we Burn brightly for your sake, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. Spirit of God, we depend upon you. We look to you. 
Jesus' name we pray. close out with the song King of Kings again. And so I encourage you guys to, to do battle with this song. This is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus overcoming everything that is evil. And so let's declare this together. In the darkness we were away without hope, without light, till from heaven
morning long, I've had this picture of a boulder. Um, and the way this, the sermon was going at the ending of even the prayer, it was just like, I think I'm supposed to share this. Um, but it was like just the, the weariness and the weight of the world. There's just this boulder on the shoulders, and you can't stand up. And it's just everything keeps compiling. The enemy is enjoying it. Sorry. The enemy is enjoying it. It keeps on piling and piling and piling. And you can't even catch your breath or breathe. And, uh, and the, the Lord brought Psalms 94, 12, 19. 94, 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And it was just in that reading of, of that verse and seeing the picture, it was the Lord's hand just going with your hand and grabbing a hammer and just compiling one smack on that boulder. And it crushes and it crumbles and there's freedom. In your freedom, there's freedom. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless our people, that you would bless brothers and sisters, neighbors, <laughs> and that you would allow them to know your freedom that you don't want us under the weight of that boulder being crushed and crushed and crushed. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reminder that you are for us. You are for us. You are for us. And in that hammer that you would remind us this week that those boulders can be crushed in your name. So Spirit of the living God, we ask for freedom. We ask for a sense of even in that crushing of that boulder, there would be a weight lifted and that you can stand up and breathe and go about your week knowing the Lord is for you and his blessings are upon you and his light of his face will shine upon you. So Lord Jesus, we ask for this this week. We ask that you would go with us in that hammer to crush the things that are holding us down, holding us captive, holding us in fear, holding us in, you name it, fill in the blank. But Lord Jesus, would you meet us in that? Would you give us freedom? Would you give us peace and rest? The three words that I keep hearing are freedom, peace, and rest. So, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would bless with peace and rest and freedom. And that you would remind us that you are for us. You are with us. You are in us. You are around us. Thank you, Spirit of the living God, for being that presence for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to end a little differently. Um, usually we end with a formal benediction. This time we're going to sing it. We're going to sing the benediction. But in lieu of that particular word, like this is, when we, when we talk about benedictions, it's God's promise to us that he wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. <laughs> He's probably more eager to bless us than we ever give him credit for. Right? And so this idea of singing the benediction now is joining with God taking the truth of who he is and the promise of his blessing and bringing it to heart it's actually taking if you will for the imagery there taking the hammer with God and bringing it upon the boulder that rests upon our shoulders say all right Lord may your comforts your consolations cheer my soul it's a fight right we get to sing it but together with God Embracing his promise, yes, that he wants to bless his people and fundamentally bless his people with his own presence. The blessing is his presence. Right? 
that's what we need. So let's sing this final song together as the benediction.
are any of you who just need prayer, um, yeah, don't run too quick. <laughs> Feel free to linger. Feel free to grab someone and just say, I need, I need prayer. Um, I'm actually going to do it myself. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, don't, don't rush if you feel like you need to just kind of linger a little bit. I think we're doing some spiritual battle, just to be straight. We're doing some spiritual battle. Some spiritual stuff needs to be broken in our lives. Right? So don't, don't just run thinking, eh, well, maybe next time. <laughs> no. Like, God's up to some things right now. He's not a God who's saying, eh, if I get around to it. Nope, he's asking us to posture ourselves before him so he can get to business in us, right? So avail yourself to him. Posture yourself before him. Don't run too quickly. So if you, if you do need to run, that's totally cool. But if you want to linger, receive prayer, just grab someone to pray with, like, do that, do that stuff now. I think God's present to accomplish some things in our midst. So, otherwise.